Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello. Welcome to another episode of Ancient Office Hours by the Ozymandias Project. Trireme Transit is now boarding for all new and returning passengers. Now departing, present ponderings. Next stop is Ancient Office Hours at a library lost in the sands of time. Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 80 of Ancient Office Hours. This week, my guest is Dr. Alex Purvis, a professor of classics at UCLA. Her research focuses on Greek literature, primarily from the archaic and classical periods. She is currently working on two projects. The first, Blue Homer, Reading the Sea in and Beyond the Odyssey, begins by examining the sea in early Greek poetry from the position of depths, surface, and shore, and then moves on to consider the color of the sea in Joyce's Ulysses, an immersion underwater in Walcott's Omeros as a means of reframing Homeric reception. In this episode, we discussed whether translation preferences matter when teaching Homer, how we balance making material accessible versus preserving a higher entry point to appreciating harder-to-translate parts, and why we should expand beyond straight reception in media and take new risks. I hope you enjoy this episode, and if you like what you hear, please give us a five-star rating and review us on Apple or Spotify. You can also subscribe to our Patreon, as this will allow us to reach more people and make more exciting ancient world content. Enjoy! Great. Thank you so much for joining me this morning. Uh, end of a nice, uh, crazy week. So let's just get going with what I hope will be kind of a nice, easy question to ease into this, which is, like, when or what age did you figure out that you were really into classics and ancient history? Probably didn't figure it out until I was about 20 or 21, I would say. Although I'd had a kind of slow moving interest from the age of maybe 12 because I lived in Greece when I was um my parents lived in Greece when I was like 11 till I was 14. I had always been interested in classics because of that because of spending time in Greece and like my mum was actually doing an open university degree classical civilization so I was kind of like interested in what she was up to and then I did English and classics as a joint degree at university, but I was never really kind of that sure whether I preferred English or classics. It wasn't really till after my my undergraduate degree that I worked it out, I think. So I was a bit late to it in a, a slow, slow kind of build up, I would say. But that's kind of fun to have lived in Greece, especially mm-hmm. between those ages, because um, I feel like it would have a big impact kind of on how... I didn't get to go to Greece until I was maybe 18, so it was uh, it was a shock even then, uh, so I can't imagine even being any younger than that. So I love, I love treading the line between English and classics. Did you ever encounter any sort of pressure to maybe stay away from the humanities and, and try to go into something that we would consider a little more... Uh, profitable I didn't like my parents were very good letting me do what I wanted to do it was also really clear that I just wasn't good at non-humanities subjects (laughs) so but um I you know I don't know if it was you know a question of where I grew up or when I grew up but we didn't have that kind of at least in my family and I didn't encounter it so much at university either, maybe because you choose your major in the UK before 
because of the system in the UK, because you do your A-levels based on the subjects that you're strong in. And then from based on those subjects, you then choose, you apply to the university, the, you know, to, to directly to the department that you want to major in. I think there was less kind of emphasis on like, how is this actually going to affect my career? And more a kind of like, these are the subjects that I enjoy. And so by the time you're already at university doing your undergraduate degree, it's a bit late to suddenly say like, oh, whoa, what am I going to do with an English and classics degree? So I think that, and also I just wasn't, there was less kind of pressure on the idea of your undergraduate degree having to lead to a specific money-making career. And maybe that was kind of naive on my part, but also maybe just a difference about the time when I grew up. Yeah, that would make sense. The message that I was always given was, you know, study what you love don't try and study something that you think my mum is a or was a librarian so she would never have talked me out of reading I think <laughs> no that's very good that's uh, I I love it when when people are not discouraged um and and I do feel like it, it's it's kind of a more recent thing within the last 10, 15 years that people are really trying to swerve kids away from humanities and, you know, you get, you get the, well, why don't you major in accounting or something so you can, you know, go be stable as an adult and not struggle. Yeah. I mean, I think that one of the great things about the American system is that you can choose to kind of minor in the humanities and major in, you know, something that's more, you know, STEMI, but and so that's kind of wonderful because you get this well-rounded, you know, education, but it also is a push towards careerism, right? It's like putting the humanities into the minor bracket. Whereas in the UK, because it's really difficult to take classes, at least when I was there, uh, you know, which was in the 90s, early, yeah, early 90s, it's, it's just really difficult to take classes even in departments that are adjacent to your own department, let alone you know, you just couldn't walk into, you know, microbiology or chemistry or math and say, you just wouldn't be equipped to take classes and they wouldn't have you. So I think that that's part of it is that because there's so much flexibility in the in the BA system in the United States, like it, people have to worry more about career because they're a little bit older and they, they kind of see the end, the, the, the end of their, you know, it's just two or three years away. So I think that's part of it. It's interesting to hear about someone who's come from the other side of the pond, uh, so to speak, um, just because I, I, obviously my frame of reference is only f coming through the American system. And normally I spend my time complaining about how, how I don't love it because it forces me to take classes well outside of my, my strengths. Uh, I always kind of wished I had a system that would let me just sort of pursue the humanities and, and not have to take math and science because I'm very clearly not yeah. good at those at all. And, and those would, you know, yes. drag down my GPA and things. And yes. I just say, oh, I would have been the same. I would have been exactly the same boat. I have to say, I'm really happy that I was able to, I mean, the, the disadvantage is that your general knowledge is kind of terrible. You know, your breadth is not so great, but you can make that up. You can make that up by listening to NPR and reading and Going, you know, I mean, there's ways in which you can you can make that up. But I think that, yeah, I would have fared probably worse in a system where I had to go and take all those that broad spread of of classes at the university level. It's hard to say. Yeah, I think at the end of the day, after speaking to so many different people who have come through both systems, I think. You know, I can't say whether one's better or not. It's just different. Um, but also, one system may play better to you. The person's yeah. strengths uh, in the other system might play better to someone else's. But I definitely know that um, I would have probably had a higher GPA if I was in the in the UK system, just because I wouldn't have taken those uh, those like C pluses in, yeah, in the science for sure. courses. For oh, sure. So. I think also, I think one issue but, about um, the UK system is that people do have a hard time making a, such an important decision when they're, you know, 18 or, even, you know, you have to keep making important decisions as you go from GCSE to A-level or IB and then to 
you know, university, you have to keep cutting things out. And I think that can be really hard for people. And for me, you know, that where that was difficult was trying to decide between English and class classics. And so I was able to do that double, you know, joint degree. But then after I finished, I had to kind of struggle with whether I wanted to do, if I wanted to go on and do a PhD, I really didn't know whether to do English or classics. And that was like, you know, so there is that problem of the kind of making the decision too early and cutting off your options that I think you do get in, in like the non-American system. Yeah, that would be, that would be a really tough one. But I mean, you kind of got the best of both worlds, right? Because once you clearly chose Elaine, you still got to yeah. work with literature though. So I mean, yeah, it worked out. <laughs> it it did. So, and I was going to say, is that, is that kind of partly how you ended up specializing in what you, in, in Greek literature? Was it because you sort of said, all right, well, I picked one, but I don't want to relinquish working with, um, with texts and, and, and other materials like that? Or did you always just really gravitate toward the literature anyway? Yeah, always. I've just always really loved reading. And uh, yeah, like poetry and prose and just loved, I love literature. I love kind of fiction. I love, I mean, I kind of care about history and material culture and I'm interested in the visual arts. I'm interested in kind of the larger scope of, you know, cultural and social practices and processes. But really what I just love to do is think about how literature works, basically, and how language works. So, I mean, language in terms of the way it gets put together into making, you know, into making a world of some kind, rather than kind of linguistics, much more the kind of creative like what language can do I suppose yeah no that's really that's really nice to have people who want to focus on that um because I feel like you know too many of us myself included we love reading and we love literature but we are so distracted by the other shiny things right that well I at least was like okay well I love this but I don't want to go super into this because I I want to explore the other shiny things over here um and and so i i was not able to go super deep into the literature aspect so my knowledge is quite general you know i can cite the the big works and the big mm -hmm. authors and so i didn't get to do some of the the lesser known texts unfortunately i i kind of had to do the homers and the well there's still time there is still time. There is still time. That's true. I have, uh, yeah, I have the rest of my life to, to keep reading, I suppose. But I'm, I'm curious, though, so since, since you do focus on Greek literature, do you have a favorite ancient author and why or why not? Mm -hmm. um, I like lots of authors. Um, at the moment, I'm really kind of, I just... I keep trying to move away from Homer because I wrote a book on Homer fairly recently. And I was kind of like, that's my, like, that was my kind of real deep dive. And now I'm going to, and I was going to move on and do other things, but I actually have realized that I'm still not bored of Homer. In fact, it's kind of the opposite. Like I just enjoy reading the Iliad and the Odyssey so much that I'm going to, I've kind of found myself still pulled back in. Now I'm thinking, and now I'm writing a book, another book on Homer and like some articles on Homer, just because it's, you know, in a very simple way, it's giving me so much pleasure to read the poetry. And I enjoy the Greek so much. Like, I just really love reading Homeric Greek that I would say that at the moment, even though it's a bit of a cliche that Homer is my favorite author at the moment. But I like lots and lots of, I mean, I do enjoy reading lots of different kinds of writer uh, kinds of poets and writers but right now homer yeah yeah no there's there's always gonna i mean i can't blame anyone who says homer because there is no one else like homer only homer wrote like homer so you know then it's it's special so i i have looking at my bookshelf i think i have about six different copies of the odyssey and about 10 different versions of the Iliad. Yeah, I and I'm I'm curious as someone who is definitely an expert in the literature part. What do you think makes a great translation? Because I've I've had multiple conversations with people who want to get into reading 
more Greek mythology or be introduced to the to the subject. And now I would always refer them to start with Homer because yeah. that's my favorite as well. But um, when it comes to you know oh what translation I'm I'm always a bit lost because I'll say well I have my personal favorite but I couldn't really tell you that much about why I, you know, other than I just think it's a better translation than Um, something else. Yeah, I really think that for translations, it depends on what you're looking for. So, you know, I have, I grew up like reading the Lattimore translation of the Iliad and the Odyssey. And I really am, I love the Lattimore. Um, It's partly because he writes, he he composes the translation in verse and the line numbers correspond. And I just really enjoy kind of seeing the hexameter, seeing the line, the lines match up in, in, you know, line to line. Um, and I just kind of, I'm just so familiar with Latimer's style that it feels very comfortable to me. Um, but I wouldn't necessarily recommend Latimer now to students, especially, or to somebody, not necessarily a student, but somebody who wanted to read Homer for the first time. I think I would recommend Emily Wilson's translation of, I haven't looked at her Iliad. I don't know if it's out yet, actually, but, um, I would recommend they look at her or the person that we used to assign when I assigned to students would be the Lombardo, which I also think is really good because I think you I think Homer is very vivid and immediate. And um, it's just a shame when his language in a translation would get cluttered with kind of archaisms or too much kind of, sometimes I think that Homer doesn't need to be slowed down as much as, he has been in translation and I think both Wilson and Lombardo are really good at keeping the tempo and keeping it very um, just kind of exciting and vivid. So I suppose I would recommend that. I, that's who I tend to recommend those two translations. I think the Wilson's really good because it gives you lots to think about and it kind of, it's, it's good about helping you. It's, it's really readable. It's very immediate. And it, it's, it gives you a way of thinking about how these questions kind of resonate with contemporary concerns. So I think that's kind of, you know, she makes, you know, deliberate translation decisions that she's talked about, you know, whether it's, you know, referring to what we would always call handmaidens as slaves and kind of drawing attention to the fact that this is a, you know, the ancient Greek culture like Roman was relied heavily on enslaved peoples and that we've kind of paid that over or, you know, the weather, the way she talks about like the Cyclops episode, for example, I think that's kind of also makes the poem more relevant and interesting. It gives, kind of gives us a purchase on it, which I think is also important, you know, especially for students, students now um, are much more interested, I think, in kind of wanting to read critically when it comes to classics rather than just reading it aesthetically. Do you know what I mean? Which is a little bit like, I think it's a little bit like the way we used to read classics was just for, you know, like just the poetry with a kind of circle around it. And now people are much more interested in thinking about it in like lots of different ways in which it can be, we can think about it critically. So I think the Wilson's good for that. No, I agree. I came through the university system. So I was, let's see, I was in it between 2013 and 2018. And it was a bit shocking to me. And I don't know if it was, perhaps it was just a a side effect of being at a state school in the Midwest. I have no idea. But for all of my classes, except for maybe one my professors assigned us the Fagel's translation. And I didn't know if that was standard, if that was unique. So I started talking to some other friends at at other schools and I said, well, can you find out, you know, what do they assign? And it it was interesting to hear that, yeah, quite a few people assigned the Fagel's. And I don't know, is that that seems to be like the popular one, but I don't know why, essentially. Um, do you know people who do assign that one or is that becoming less common? I, it's funny. I've never read the Fagels. I, I think I've started it and I just wasn't, didn't particularly, you know, find it that compelling. I think that a lot of people do or did assign it. It was just one, you know, I think part of the issue is that 
you know, when a professor is making their reading list for a class or their book order, they will go to the text that they know best, right? So they might have been assigned. You might have a professor who's in their 50s who, when they were at college, read the Fagels, or that's the translation they loved the most. And also maybe that the Fagels is cheaper than some other ones, you know, or that, that. So there's, I think there's a lot of reasons why, or they just, you know, that's what happens to be what they've been teaching for 20 years and their slides are all keyed up to the, you know, their notes are all keyed up to the Fagels translations because I haven't looked at the Fagels really. Honestly, I've never looked at it properly. I can't speak to how good or bad it is. But I do think sometimes that we do have to think, I mean, this is why I think that, you know, a lot of people when the Wilson came out switched over to Wilson. The same thing happened with Lombardo. A lot of teachers and professors were like, oh, actually, let me think about switching over. You know, even my son who did Odyssey, you know, all the all the students in California do the Odyssey for like ninth or 10th grade. And I actually had a, t a conversation with his English teacher about it because he did it in English. And it's like, there's a kind of the school board will recommend whatever they, you know, somebody came up with an idea of what every English teacher should be assigning. And it might have been the Fagels. And, you know, she was like, oh, I've heard about this Wilson. Maybe I should try that. I think that there is a moment when a new translation comes out and people will talk about it. And I think that happened with the Lombardo and I think it happened with the Wilson. But otherwise... People are just going to use the old standards. And I think Fagels is one of the old standards. It's a good translation. It's reliable. It's accurate. I wish I knew more about that. I could talk more about it, but I actually really have never read past the first like book, I think. So I don't know. Did you like it? I did actually. And, and again, I did wonder, I said, you know, I don't know because I do know there are other translations and we had other translations kind of going around that students in our department would pick up. And it was kind of nice in our classics lounge. Uh, we had like a, a nice coffee table where they would say, you know, if you have any sort of materials that you would like to share, um, leave, leave them here and, and people can read them. And so I did pick up a couple other translations. Um, I picked up the Stephen Mitchell translation of the Iliad oh, yeah. and ended up liking it yeah. far more than I thought I would, but I found it to be a bit more inaccessible than some of the other translations. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, it ended up being one of the books that I said, okay, well, I would read this and maybe someone who majored in classics should read this, but if it's your first time, maybe don't read this because yeah. you might struggle. I like the Fagels, but again, I see that's what I, I started with at the beginning of my yeah. collegiate education. So I don't know if I like it because I, know. That's exactly I actually it. genuinely love it. Or is it just because I had to read that so many times that I it just became very comfortable? Because yeah, I, I think of like, if I was going to teach a, a class on Homer, I probably would assign the Fagels just because that's what I started with. And yeah. That's what I like. Yeah. And um, I think that, you know, that's so true for me with the Lattimore. It's just and I think it's actually really interesting to think about ways in which, you know, these translations that we were assigned at those key moments when we were just getting into classics, they really stay with you. They matter to you, you know. So I think that that's it's really important to remember that. Um, I certainly feel that way about the Latimore. I can't be impartial about the Latimore. I just love the Latimore, you know. So, yeah. That's, uh, that's what one of my favorite professors, I didn't have the pleasure of taking a class with her but she she grew up with the Lattimore and, and she always says you know well I only want to read this yeah. um or suggest this so it's it's interesting because it made me think a lot about how different students at different places even even the variation between classes um how different their exposure and initial introduction to something like Homer but any of the other literature as well based on translation um until obviously people progress and for those who can learn to read the text in the original language um, for those who are who basically stay with the translations it's interesting to see how different their experience with the text might be based on translation I agree it's it's a whole cool experience that I I like to to, to see and to hear about because I had a friend whose experience with Homer was completely different and and it made me honestly think about obviously in the in the in high school here we have to do we have a whole year on Shakespeare and growing up I didn't have an issue with Shakespeare in English I I sort of somehow got it and it made sense to me but I did have a lot of friends struggle Mm -hmm. And they, you know, they come out with the no fear Shakespeare where you have to translate it on the side I into know. readable English. And so that sort of stayed in my mind. And I thought, 
oh my gosh, well, are, are some translations maybe of Homer's works translated down to the point where it is kind of like a knockoff, no fear Homer? Yeah, I think that's a pretty good point, actually. I think there is, yeah. Like what, what uh, you know, what does it mean to cut out, what do you do with similes? What does it mean to cut out epithets? What is it, it's like the, the essential Homer, which is, you know, the kind of, a book that you you know it's just taking the key the most interesting bits of the Iliad or the Odyssey and just kind of doing that abridged version it's the same idea it's like we have to get a certain amount of material across in a short amount of time and so it makes total sense like exposure is really important but you are getting a different like is it a no fear <laughs> a no fear Iliad you know and I think for sure there's something like that going on yeah and this is why though I mean this is why I think I think there's something really interesting about the movement from tr across from translation to reading in Greek, and even if that means you're in the mid in the middle stage where you're looking at translation and you're also reading the Greek yourself, you know, because you can't you're not quite strong enough in Greek to be able to just read it by yourself. I think there's a really wonderful moment that people who study Greek and Latin will come across where they'll start to be like, oh wait. You know, I can see the translation, but I can also see something else that's in the Greek that is maybe not so easy to communicate in translation. So it's like there is some really wonderful moment when you realize that you're getting an extra something when you read the Greek and you can it, it, it kind of it helps even more to think about it in relation to what you're seeing in the translation. I think, it, yeah, I mean, it's just kind of adds I mean, it's funny because I came across Homer like so many people. I knew the text so well already in translation before I read it in Greek. And there's a kind of something really nice about that, actually, about like having this Latimer like in your bones and then learning the reading the Greek and that and kind of melding it in some strange way with the Latimer that you know so well. So I think it's nice. Yeah, I definitely appreciated having a very firm grasp of the translation because it does help because when you find a hard word and you're kind of like okay well what is this but it also helps you see the nuance I, I remember I I think I oh I don't remember what it was now but yeah I definitely saw a word and said oh that's an interesting way to translate it in English and then I knew the Greek word and I was like oh I mean I guess it's similar um <laughs> like okay yeah and so many you know especially for in Homer with so many words that we just have kind of shorthands translations for because we don't really know what they mean and then when you think when the more that you read the greek the more you realize that the translation is just trying to fill a space it's trying to fill a gap really with a kind of like oh it's that word again we don't really have a you know we don't really know what it means so we'll just we'll just plug in this one word right in english over and over again to kind of fill the gap whereas in greek it's it's just much richer because you're thinking like oh I don't know. It's just, it's, it's a nice back and forth, I think. Yeah. It's uh, my, I remember my first Greek professor, uh, the moment we got into that class, I remember he said, okay, everything you know about English is about to change because you're about to start learning ancient Greek. Mm -hmm. And he said, and it, there's a clarity to it in a way I can't explain until you start learning oh, it. That's... And I remember he just said, it's like, the feeling of putting on a pair of glasses the first time and you didn't know you needed them, but you did need them. Oh, I love that. Yeah, so all of us on this, like, day one of elementary ancient Greek one, we were like, uh, that doesn't make any sense. And then as we progressed through the semester, we were like, oh, my gosh. And so every time a light clicked on because someone started to understand more. Yeah. Uh, I remember all of us, it was like a celebration. We were like, oh, my gosh, wait, this makes so much sense. It is like putting on glasses yeah. for the first time. I love uh, that. That's really nice. Yeah. It's very inspirational. Yeah. yeah. Inspirational in a way I, we didn't know we needed. Yeah, he was, he was a good professor. So, But, okay, I want to I wanna ask a little bit. So we have a ton of Iliad Odyssey, just Homer in general, inspired uh, reception things in media all across the board. We have plays and we have films and TV shows and probably all, uh, all sorts of things that I can't even think about at this moment. But I would say we are very saturated, oversaturated even with, with Homer adaptations. Mm. But there are a lot of great 
Greek Roman works that we haven't seen brought to the screen or any other kind of medium. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious if you could see anything brought to the big screen, the small screen, a play, something that you have not seen done, what would you like to see? Okay. I have to think though for a little minute. It's very difficult, honestly, because I don't really like plays or films that adapt ancient texts because unless they're done really experimentally or like really creatively, it's just always, I just, it's like, I don't like literal transposition of like, you know, let's take um, a Greek tragedy and put it on Broadway or let's take, let's take the Iliad and put it on screen. I, I just think it, it's so, unless something is done that's remarkably different with it, I just find it disappointing in general, not always, but it's just not something that particularly interests me. I mean, I think the thing that I like about reception is when the original text is really changed and really just almost hidden in a way. So it becomes a kind of, either it gets broken up and reassembled or something experimental is done with it. I think it's more, I think it's really interesting when, when rules are deliberately broken and it doesn't attempt to keep on, keep hold of its classical kind of form. And Carson's really good at this, for example, like her Antigonic, for example, is a great example. I think that um, Alice Oswald's, both of her poems, which are based on, which she has more than two, actually, her poems that are based on the Iliad and the Odyssey, like she has the memorial, but she also has Nobody, and she has um, a poem based on Tithonos and Dawn. I think those are great because she's breaking up and doing, especially her Odyssey, well, both of them, you know, all three of them, she's doing something very different. So if I could see any text, if if I had the chance to like say, you know, here's a really exciting experimental artist of some kind, give them a text to do something with, I think I would be interested in maybe something that's not very narrative maybe a little bit of something like I was I'm trying to I'm kind of dithering between Hesiod and kind of Archilochus at the moment in my mind but I but I think the the point is that there is no text that I feel isn't getting enough airtime. I just feel like I mean I don't know how to put it more it's like we don't need to keep reproducing these texts. We need to change them and do different things with them and make them more interesting. And it's hard for me to say like which text is now ready for for something interesting to happen to it. But I would be kind of, if I saw that something was happening with Hesiod or Archilochus, I think I would be interested to go, <laughs> I suppose. I mean, I'm thinking also like, look at what Anne Carson did with Simonides and Paul Salant. Like, I just think there's a way in which I personally don't feel that we need more straight reception. Do you know? Yeah, no, it's valid because I, you know, I didn't feel that way so much because I, I sort of felt as, um, let's just say, probably a year ago, as recently as a year ago, I definitely felt like, okay, well, people clearly with classics programs getting defunded and all these problems that the humanities are facing I said well you know I think any kind of attention paid to classics would be good um but at the same time then I started doing a another podcast with a friend of mine where we read books and watch films and tv shows all classical reception and um the the more Iliad and Odyssey theme films and books that we read and watched, the more we sort of started to get into this sort of reflecting mood of, okay, this was actually quite terrible and this does not tell the story. And why did I just watch this? This has nothing to do with Homer's works. They just wanted a fun setting that could sell. So now I'm a bit more skeptical about straight reception because I do think it's fun to take a risk. Yeah, I think it's really, I think you're right. It's really tricky because I just, I don't, I, I, I mean, this is part of the problem is that I'm not the right audience person for, because I'm not interested specifically in seeing those 
explicit moments of transition across unless something is I mean for example that so the Getty Villa does a play every year you know this um at every September they put on some kind of a Greek play and some of their plays have been so good but I always enjoy them the most when there's something that's like the last play they did was the you know it was that is is the theater company called Deaf West but they have differently abled so most people are either most some of the actors are deaf some of the actors are hard of hearing um some of the actors are speaking some are non-speaking I don't know if you saw it Oedipus the King being basically partly spoken and partly signed it was absolutely brilliant like so I'm I'm really into seeing things that are surprising for me it's like really it was so surprising and so unusual and really made me think differently about the way that the play works. And it was a kind of straight rendition of the play in translation, but they had, you know, deaf and partially deaf or and hearing actors. Um, but I also think that it's fine just to experiment with in, you know, there's been lots of novels and, and films and theater on thinking about ways in which we can rewrite but it for me for me personally I get frustrated with the kind of easy moves that are often made when you're translating or 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 adapting ancient material I get frustrated with how it gets kind of too much like a kind of schlocky novel or too I don't know it's just some too much gets lost for me often but I think that on the other hand, the great big boom in like, so again, to think about my son who was completely obsessed with the Percy Jackson and stuff and all of his friends who love Greek mythology. I mean, that's absolutely brilliant. Like, I'm so happy that's happening. <laughs> so it's also a question of audience. Do you know what I mean? I think part of the problem is that I'm not an ideal audience member because I care too much. and I'm too like too much of a classicist. And some classicists are much better and much less snobby about it. You know, I mean, I say snobby in the sense that I'm just too critical and too much like I'd rather just read the damn Greek than have to sit through this. Do you know what I mean? So I guess, yeah, it does matter. And I think it's, look, we should constantly be trying to fund and support all of these ventures because it's important for our discipline, you know, and I think it's important for bringing people into our discipline and, it's a great gift for people to to read classics because it's material so fantastic. And so I'm all for that. No, I agree. It It is hard because, and I've had to really sit down and look at, you know, where am I in my classics journey? I mean, luckily, I'm not so far in that, that now it's, it's hard to... Um, look at all these different forms of receptions but but even where I am it 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 makes it pretty hard because I I do know that you know I'm not as much of a snob about other things but when it comes to Homer as a class is bread and butter you're kind of like oh oh what are you gonna do with this yeah. is it gonna be really bad so I've definitely had to subject myself why did you make them why did you turn that into this when you could have left it as it was you know I'm also feel like it's like for me personally, the thing that I find least interesting in a strange way after reading and rereading and rereading is I find the plot the least interesting aspect of of ancient texts. So what I find frustrating is when the plot gets hyped or character gets hyped and overdone and other parts fall away. And that's what I guess I mean by like being a snob. It's just like, it's maybe snob is the right word. It might be the wrong word, but it's like, I'm just much more interested in the other stuff than I am in the plot and the character. And often what ends up getting pulled over in adaptations is an over hyping of plot and character or a, or a mixing, a meddling of plot and character in a way that I personally don't find interesting because I'm, more interested in other things about the, the the text themselves, if you see what I mean. Yeah, it's true. I mean, there. I I will say after doing this venture and reviewing a ton of Homer centric books, seem to do it a lot better than 
almost any other type of media, I would say, um, only because, you know, you can you can watch a billion films and say, okay, well, you're just trying to, you know, have something bitty that you can fit in two hours and you have to convey all this stuff and it has to have a somewhat entertaining plot. But the, for the books that we've reviewed and we've done, I can think specifically to, I just read Maya Dean's Wrath Gotta Sing, which is a completely revolutionary take on the Iliad because it's written by a trans author and Achilles is trans in in the mm-hmm. book. And so it's a completely mm-hmm. different perspective. And then, you know, something like Song of Achilles was pretty good to read as well because they mm-hmm. do something so completely different and they take a story you think you know and then they twist mm-hmm. it. And I was like, by the end of both books, I was like, what is this? Wow. So I think books do it. A lot better but also they have more space and more room because they have to be more well thought out um than a shitty film that you could do in <laughs> two hours and then leave it i guess yeah i mean i i actually don't know the first book you mentioned but i'd be curious to read that i i also want to i still have the book that people tell me that they like the most talking about Madeline miller is circe and i still haven't i kind of <laughs> i kind of you know, I, I want to read it, but I don't want to read it, but I will read it because a lot of people have said that they really loved Cersei and that it's a really successful uh, and really interesting take on, I guess, an aspect of the Odyssey. So, yeah, I mean, I think that part of the thing about being a classicist, I think you feel a certain amount of pressure to keep up with all these, this constant flow of novels, especially that are coming out. And then, so you're always kind of bracing yourself for disappointment, I think. I don't know. I don't know. No, it's true. It's true. I can't, the first one that you mentioned. Yeah. Yes, I highly recommend it. It's become a book that I've quickly started to recommend to everyone I know who's interested in classics because it is such a, a, a different take and I and I really love it. And and there, the, the author, Maya Dean, she puts in like so many chapters and episodes that you wouldn't like kind of just skip over completely or that you wouldn't think about happening in the midst of of the story you know we're so focused on the war the war the war but Maya so so elegantly puts in like the chapter like we have to how do we feed armies oh you have to get grain we should go to Egypt because it's right down there like get grain so yeah it's it is can be really interesting like I don't know if you've read the the Pat Barker Silence of the Girls. Have you read that? Yes. It's- so, I mean, yeah, the first chapter of that book, I think she talks about the experience of Briseis or Briseis. She talks about the capture of their city and then being taken into slavery and being, you know, basically a, you know, a sex slave. And it, it's so different than the way that Homer puts it, obviously. And just to kind of be forced to spend a, chapter reading about that experience it's really I think it's precise it's really really um eye-opening I would say and so those kinds of reading that chapter really stayed with me and now when I read the Iliad I think about it differently same I think and actually one of my favorite books of all time is Natalie Haynes A Thousand Ships because we never hear from the women Oh, it's so good. I mean, it was shortlisted for the Women's Prize in Fiction in 2020 when it came out. Mm-hmm. But it's basically, it take it's the voices of all the women in across mythology. And she tells their story from their perspective. And so you get these great chapters from women that you don't hear from ever. Oinoni, Polyxena, like you get great chapters, you get mm-hmm. chapters told from the perspective of the goddesses for the contest of the golden apple um you get great Mm. material you get i love the way she does her um penelope chapters for the odyssey so you never hear from odysseus which is fantastic but the way she chose to do these chapters are her writing letters to odysseus and it's fantastic and then you get this um great these great chapters you get andromache and like half the time i listen to the audiobook version first before reading the print version and you can kind of hear natalie haynes crying as she's reading it and it's so emotional and it got me so emotional and Mm. now it's just my like my favorite thing of all time and i listen to it yeah it sounds like the kind of a like a you know when you were asking me about text i was actually thinking of the catalog of women it sounds like that's what she was able to do right Mm -hmm. yeah I'll I'll look into that I I don't know that book but I'll definitely check it out 
Yeah. Oh, it's so excellent. So, you know, that we, yeah, I think, again, but they're, they're all like books. So I think the lesson here is that books might be more successful in taking material and doing something quite interesting and not have it turn out sort of meh. But that's not to say we couldn't have some interesting non-book reception things done. I, I, I just wanted to mention really quickly that I remember I kind of felt the same way about Shakespeare growing up because my, my father was a huge Shakespeare fan, as I said. And so I grew up going to a lot of Shakespeare plays and some I liked, some, okay, I didn't. But I remember he took me to, they did a production of Othello here in Chicago. It was not your normal Othello. It was like a hip hop rap super contemporary Othello where like all the characters wearing like ripped jeans and leather jackets and the set was like a graffiti Brooklyn apartment and you were like what is this my senses hurt and they wrapped the whole thing and it was fantastic and I was like wow yeah that's that sounds great yeah, so, you know, I hold out hope that people can do amazing things with classical material. For sure, they have been for a long time and they will be in the future. I'm sure that is absolutely true, yeah. Ex- exactly. Yeah. So there's so much more that we could get into, obviously, but neither of us have time for that or we would be dead. But um, I, I normally end the interview portion of the podcast with a couple last questions and the, the first of which is when you were a student did you um I know in the UK it's a bit different but you could choose from grad school if you wish did you attend your professor's office hours I don't even know if we had office hours we probably did in the UK but I was very shy I did not go to office hours no which is bad very bad <laughs> Totally okay. I mean, but now you've had years of experience. You've been yes, through no, both undergrad. <laughs> so, see, this is perfect. So, like, now from the other side, as a professor yourself, yeah, if you were going to give, like, an elevator pitch. Hours. If you were going to give an elevator pitch to students about why, the, why it's important to go to office hours, what would you tell them? It's so important. It's more important than anything, actually, especially in the American system. So, you know, it's difficult to get to know your professor. That's when you have genuine conversations. I think people are unnecessarily scared. You, the thing to know is you don't have to stay that long. You can just go for 10 minutes. You don't have to go in. I mean, it's great if you have a load of questions also, but you can just say, I just want to introduce myself. I'm enjoying your class. Um, and then you can ask a question really about anything. You know, you've got to have something to get the ball rolling, but it just is... Just think of it like a 10 minute conversation, like, oh, you mentioned that you grew up in such and such, or how did you get into classics? Or a question like, I'm kind of struggling in this class with this. Could you help me with it? Or I don't really understand this. Like, I've never known a professor to be, you know, like, what are you doing with that silly question in my office hours? They're always happy to talk. And I think it's it's really important as a way of making your university experience meaningful. Otherwise you can kind of get lost in the wash a little bit. And it's, university is hard. It's difficult. You need help. Take it. Take the help. It's free. Take it. Most professors are quite interesting and nice. That's my pitch. Completely agree. Completely agree. I loved office hours. So people should definitely go to office hours. And professors are very nice. I really, I loved all of mine. So used to seeing students in their office hours. So they're not it's not awkward for them in the way that you think it's awkward for you. So they're just, they'll keep it going. They'll just let them do the work. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So at the end of each podcast, I ask if each guest will read Percy Shelley's beautiful poem, Ozymandias. And then after, I'd be interested to know your thoughts on what do you think of this poem? And why do you think that people often cite this poem as an exemplary example of beautiful poetry with uh, important meanings. Uh, I've heard so many people talk very highly of this poem, so I'd be interested to know if you agree or not. So I will screen share the poem for you, and you are welcome to start reading whenever you would like. So let me just screen share this for you. Okay. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too 
like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. I met a traveler from an antique land who said two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal these words appear, my name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level stands stretch far away. So you want me to talk about it? I mean, really, this is like on the spot. Is that okay? I didn't. Yeah, no, prepare. this is just your cold thoughts. I, I, just what Okay, cold, cold thoughts. I suppose that my initial, I mean, of course, I do know this poem. And I've read it as an undergraduate and stuff, and I've read it since, but I haven't really thought about it recently. So my cold thoughts on this poem would be, um, I suppose, whether this is a poem that we should read optimistically or pessimistically. And the kind of despair in line, the fourth line from the bottom is, on the one hand, he's inviting, Ozymandias is inviting us to despair because his works are so magnificent, but of course now the works have disappeared, so the despair has changed, it's kind of flipped in some way. And the question then becomes like, does despair carry through the last lines of the poem? Is that the last affect or emotion of the poem? Or is it something else, right? Because what does it mean that his works have gone and we're looking out over these lone and level sands? And because he's this arrogant you know, great king who's getting his comeuppance in some senses, there is a certain sense of delight at the end, I think, that he couldn't foretell the future, that he that he wouldn't last through the past. There's a certain leveling of hubris that is pleasurable to read. But I think also there's a kind of despair in the sense that things don't last and sand wears everything away. And you could read his poem kind of like you know the way that people read the flood in the Iliad that will wash the Iliad the Trojan plain completely bare with these level lone sands I mean it's a bit despairing right boundless bare lone and level we've just got decay and wreck but at the same time so you could read it environmentally as well of the kind of what's where the world's going to be what the world is going to end up as but I uh, I suppose that in terms of classics, this king thought he understood what history would be and history turned out to be something else. I mean, yes, his inscription remains. So his name is still known. 
but the way that we're reading Ozymandias is different to the way he thinks we're going to read him. And that in itself is something not to despair about, I suppose. There's kind of a, it's inviting a long stretch of contemplation about time, right? The question then becomes, you know, this is our, this is the way, this is the long view of the past from one perspective and the future from the other perspective. And we still have a lot left to see in the sense that we have, we still have the inscriptions. So I think it's a kind of nice reflection on the way that we look backwards and what's left and what we do with what's left and the way that what's left is always has its own kind of agency. I don't yeah. know. What, what is, I don't know. I, mean, that's, I guess that just, I can't remember what I was told about this poem in English class. So I actually don't know what the official line is anymore. Don't worry. I So when I was first introduced to this poem, I thought it was the best poem. And it's still to this day remained my favorite poem of all time. Uh, because I think it hits on all those themes. I also think I, I look at the poem as a memento mori, for sure. And I also know that Percy Shelley was writing it at this interesting political time in 1818, and he was basing it off of a statue of Ramesses that had been uncovered in Egypt and that was being shipped to the UK to go into the British Museum. Yeah, 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 for sure. There's this sense of elegant decay, but also it's a political statement by Shelley on the ephemeral nature of power, both political and otherwise. It's a statement on monumentality, kind of a statement on, on humans, human nature in general. Uh, there's so many layers to it, which is why it's, to me, it's sort of uncapturable. You can't look at it and really, well, one could try to analyze every bit of it, but it's still hard, which is why I love hearing what everyone thinks about it, just because it is so different. But yeah, I mean, considering, if we consider the poem in this way, the last question I ask every single guest on the podcast is, if we take a minute to consider our contemporary society right now, do we have a modern equivalent of Ozymandias? Like, do we have something that we think is going to last forever, is monumental, is so great? But realistically, would humans, like, a thousand years from now agree with us or think we were crazy? Oh, I don't think we really have anything, do you? You know, I go back and forth, it's hard, but I've had so many good answers i think my favorite would be someone said the internet because we think the internet's the be-all end-all right now and you know people say oh well don't put something online or don't get captured saying something because it'll go online and be there forever but the internet is really just a couple huge servers in like silicon valley and if something were to happen to those servers oh i see i thought you meant is there anything that will last forever you mean is there anything we think will last forever but one i mean yeah but also you know if if something could last forever, you know, do we have something that could? But that's the thing. I don't know. I don't think it would be. I don't think I would want to say that we had anything that could last forever. I think that would be foolish. But things that we think will last forever, then I mean, I think that the Internet is a great answer. But also that's just kind of the way we're hardwired. It's very difficult for us to understand that things will pass out of time it's very hard for us to get our heads around that idea. So I think a number of things we could say, oh, this will always be there. It'll be there into the future, no matter what. And it's it's very, very difficult for us as human beings to understand that that's not true. It's just very hard. So I suppose that I, rather than trying to come up with examples, I would just say that. Yeah, that works too. It works too. So I kind of lied. There is one more question I'm going to ask you, and that is where can people find you if they want to find your work or contact you with maybe a question see if they can come you know take a class or anything uh i'm at ucla and you can find me i have a website at the ucla department of classics perfect well we will link that in the show notes so people can go on there and find you if they wish and yeah i just really wanted to say thank you again for for joining me on the podcast this morning it's been a real pleasure and uh, i wish like always that we had more time yeah, me too. Thank you so much. Trireme Transit is now departing ancient office hours. Next stop is Present Ponderings.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.